Okay, good morning everyone. If you don't know me, my name's Adrian. I'm going to take us through this next part where we've started a series, if you were around last week, Mike kicked it off, uh, entitled Formed in Prayer. And I'd encourage if you weren't around last week, please do go and listen to that talk because it kind of sets the tone of everything of why we're doing uh, this series in prayer, uh, which we believe is in a moment we want to be those who take prayer seriously as followers of Jesus. Prayer isn't an added extra, it isn't a shopping list that we go to with God, but actually a development of relationship. And what we're gonna learn, and as we go through this series, is realize that we are to be those that in prayer we will find that we're formed. We're formed in respect to who we are, but also how we live and how we see God. And one of the groups that's particularly impacted me uh, over the last kind of six months as I've read around prayer has been a group that, uh, to be honest, just keep being talked about in different settings that I've been in called the Moravians. The Moravians lived in the 1700s and were a kind of group that had been persecuted uh, and found themselves like living in community together in the early 1700s. And to be honest, didn't live very well together. They kind of bickered and kind of fell out with one another. And then one evening uh, in 1727, uh, they gathered together and the Holy Spirit met with them in such a way that they did what we sung about. They broke their walls down and realized they were there for a purpose. And they then started to change how they lived together and lived with three different passions. A passion that Jesus would be number one in their lives in all they spoke about. A passion for prayer and a passion to reveal Jesus and his rule and reign in everything and in everywhere on the earth. And in terms of that second passion of prayer, it was said that after their gathering in early 1727, they then felt that a number of them, I think it was somewhere like seven women and seven men, decided that they would give themselves to an hour of prayer every day. And that was to grow and was to continue to be a 24-7 prayer for 100 years. And it didn't just involve the adults, it also involved the children. And there's um, one comment that someone makes around that time saying that when you went into the gathering of the children praying, you couldn't help but have your heart changed by hearing their petitions. And as I read that, I thought, that's what I want to be said about us. I want it to be said about our children, about us as a community, that we take prayer seriously, but also that we take Jesus seriously and we take Seriously, they want to take Jesus into the world. In terms of their passion to see Jesus taken into the world, it actually caused some of them to sell themselves into slavery. Because so they wanted to reach people who were in slavery. Uh, it was said that on the boat over to America, a group of Moravians were there, men and women and children, and they were there and they hit a storm and everyone else on the boat was completely freaking out. It doesn't say that in the uh, original kind of translation. Uh, they didn't use the word freaking out at that point, but that's to kind of give some relevance to our day and age. They're freaking out, thinking we're going to drown. Apart from this small group of Moravians, who others on the boat realized just stayed still, continued to worship, and the youngest of the oldest seemed to have a peace about them that seemed so enticing. One individual on that boat was a man called John Wesley, and he was so struck by the faith of this group of people that he couldn't help but investigate a bit more. He was then to spend time with them, both in America and then in the UK. And as a result of it, 
started what was known then as the Wesleyan Revival that saw thousands come to know the living knowledge of who Jesus is and the life that he offers and birthed the Methodist movement of which we benefit from through being in this church building. You see, this group of people, they're little known. They were a little bunch, yet they hit and punched well above their weight because they realized, one, who God was as they prayed, but two, who they were. And as they realized that, it caused them to take God and Jesus more seriously and to reveal him more seriously in everything. Therefore, I'm believing that as we spend some time looking at prayer, looking at the pattern of prayer that Jesus has given us, that it will change who we are. It will change what we do. And it will cause us to enjoy more of who God is. So I want to start, therefore, with a question. The question is this. What defines you? What defines you? Like, if you were to be brutally honest, in this moment, what is it that defines you? Is it your circumstances you're living with? Is it the career that you're enjoying is, or not enjoying? Is it the recovery you're part of? Is it your past Is it your academic achievements or desire for academic achievements? Is it your health? Is it what other people think of you? I think for decades, just because I no longer do live in that bracket of student to 30, I'm definitely well and truly out of that, and my hair has always shown that to be true, but in it, it's that knowledge of... I live for decades of wondering how others thought about me. And that what they thought about me defined who I was. Like, what defines you? As we get to look at this next part of the Lord's Prayer, we're going to read it first, then we're going to zoom in on a part. I want us to see that Jesus wants to answer that question. Because when we get to grips with how we're to be defined, it changes how we live and how we pray, and how we seek to reveal the wonder of who God is. So Jesus said, this is how you're to pray, this is how you're to be shaped as you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. See, for us to answer that question of how are we to be defined, for us to understand that God is longing to form us in prayer, actually we need to understand there is a starting point. There's a starting point of how this prayer starts. A starting point that when we get hold of it, it transforms everything about who we are. That's quite a bold claim, isn't it? It will transform about everything of who we are of how we live, of how we see God and how we understand that God's heart, as that song that was sung at the end of our worship time, expresses as a heart that breaks. Isn't unmoved by what's going on in the world, but it's a heart that breaks. Because the starting point is this, our Father in heaven. That's the starting point for any one of us. It's the starting point and the continuation point for the whole of our lives. It's the starting point of revealing who God is, our Father in heaven. Michael Green, uh, in his commentary on this verse, says this, the whole of the gospel is contained in that one little word, Abba, Father. Man, that's a pretty big claim. 
the whole of the gospel, the good news, the wonder of what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection, the answer of the whole of the Bible from the beginning of Genesis 3. Well, we find in Genesis 3, the whole of creation goes to pot. Because of humanity's desire to say, we're going to curve in. We think we've got a better way than you, God. We want to be like you, not only in your image, but equal to you. We want to have the same power you have. That in the moment of that brokenness, and God promises, yeah, but I'm going to send one who will save everyone. Through to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Through to the very end of the book, Revelation, where we see the wonder of Jesus' rule and reign filling the whole of the earth. The commentator says, hey, The whole of that story, the whole of this good news message of the wonder and the answer that Jesus provides is revealed in that one word, Father. See, we can grow familiar to it. Oh yeah, of course, our Father in heaven. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. No, no, this is a radical statement. When Jesus said this, this would have burnt people's ears. You can't possibly say that you can approach Yahweh, God, the one who is name, that cannot be named. The one who is, I am who I am. You cannot come and approach him as father. This is radical teaching. This is something that would have seemed alarming to hear. See, Jesus says the starting point isn't a distant God, but a God that we approach in the intimacy of a father. That Jesus, when he rose from the dead, and see the account in John 20, that Jesus explains, hey, what's happened as a result of me, as a result of my resurrection? Well, he talks to the first person that he sees, and that's Mary, a great friend of Jesus, and entrusts her with the message and says, hey, go and tell all my other friends, I'm not dead, I'm alive. And tell them I'm going soon to where? To my father our Father. In that moment, it wasn't just like throwaway words, it was like a revelation of what has now happened that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he invites anyone who centers their life on him to enjoy the relationship that he has always enjoyed. One of knowing the eternal Father as the eternal Son through the eternal Holy Spirit. And says, this is now the call to relationship. Not to a distant God, not to a God who sat aloof, sat aloof, kind of allowing things to play out, but a God who's a loving, intimate Father who's longing to know you, that you can know Him. But He's also longing to know everyone. So then, it surely causes us to ask the question, well then, what kind of Father is He? If, God, if Jesus is saying, look, we're to now know God as our Father, then the surely next question is, when, what kind of Father is he? Because every single one of us has had an experience, good or bad, of that word Father. I don't know what it is for you. Like for some of us, we've never known our Father, and that says everything. For others of us, we'll think, no, no, my, my Father was good. You know, I have a great dad. My dad's actually an oasis. People are often surprised by that fact. They come up to me and say, hey, did you know your mum and dad are an oasis? And I say, yeah, do you know what? I did. (laughs) But I had a good dad. I have the privilege of being a father. I've got three kids who are now teenagers getting into kind of adult clothes. (laughs) And with it, I seek to be the best I can for them. But you know what the reality is this? However good I try to be to them, 
I still get tired. And when I get tired, my energy isn't as much as it should be for them. I get grumpy. Like everyone, and I, like Lucy's already nodding. Like everyone, <laughs> Lucy's my wife, for those of you who don't know me. Um, like everyone in our household knows that if I'm tired and it's first thing in the morning, I'm like a bear with a sore head. However much I try not to be. I try not to talk to anyone just so that I don't reveal the ugliness of myself. And then someone says something, and I'll go, What? A drink? At this time? But Dad, we've not had a drink since this morning. Get it yourself! <laughs> like the ugliness, however good I'm wanting to be, I just get tired. I fall short. And if we're not careful that our experience, however good or however bad, actually begins to limit and box what we hear when Jesus says, our Father in heaven. We think, oh yeah, Father, I know what that is. And maybe it means we think, I don't want anything to do with it. Maybe it's like, oh, I know exactly what that is. It's like my dad. Now, I want us to see that whether we've got to that point of thinking, I don't want anything to do with this. So we thought, actually, no, I'm sure it's as good as what my dad is. He is way better, way better than I can do justice in describing. But for a moment, let me just describe what I see through scripture of who this father is. Firstly, he is a father, if we go to the next slide, who is patient, forgiving, and restorative. In Luke 15, Jesus tells this amazing story in uh, verses 11 to 31, where he tells this story of a lost son. Now, we often hear that story, and we think, oh yeah, the lost son, the prodigal son. There are so many lessons that Jesus is telling us through this story, and we can look and think, oh yeah, it's about the son. The son who does what? Well, he says, I want everything now and live how I want to live. Or maybe it's about the older brother at the very end. Yeah, it's about both of those sons. But actually, I think it's more about the dad, the father. See, what you find at the beginning of the story is a father who's approached by a son who says, Dad, I wish you were dead. You say, no, no, he doesn't say that. I know he does. He says, I want my inheritance now. Like, I don't want to wait till you're dead. I wish you were dead now because I want my money now. Now, in the culture that they were living in at that moment in time, a family-based, oriented culture, that was not only disrespectful to the father, but brought shame on the whole family. So Jesus tells a story about a son who brings not only shame and rejection to a dad, but to the whole family. And what does the father do? He says, well, here you go. Here's your inheritance. And the son goes and squanders it and gets to a point of utter desperation. We know the story, don't we? Utter desperation. Eating from a pigsty. Like, how desperate is that? You're a Jew, you want nothing to do with pigs, and you're, still, you're actually farming them and eating with them. And at that moment, the lowest of the lowest says, actually, even my father's servants get a better deal than this. I'm going back and will offer myself as a servant. And then you get to this point where the son makes his way back to the father's house. And at that point, our focus is all on the son. But Jesus wasn't thinking about the son. He was thinking about the father. He didn't look at the father. Remember him? The one that had been shamed, the one that had been rejected. How does he respond? He says he sees the son from a distance 
and runs. We've got to remember, this was a close-knit community. This wasn't like some rural archers farming community, you know, house in the middle of nowhere, no one's around. Think I'd do a bit of a jog to see him. Now, this was in front of the rest of the village, the rest of the town that this father had been ashamed in front of. And he runs. He runs, regardless of what anyone else thinks, to embrace his son. And then he says what? He says, then he not only embraces and forgives his son, he then says, come, bring a robe and put it on him. Give him my ring. He restores him. He says, you're not going to be a servant here. You're going to be my son because I love you. I forgive you. I want to restore you. I've waited patiently for you. Jesus says, this is the father. This is what the father in heaven is like. That's just the first thing. It's pretty good, isn't it? First story, we'll do some others. It'll be a bit quicker. Second, he is loving. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, on you, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. God eternally, forever, loves you, loves me. That he's a father of all compassion and comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. He is good and perfect, James 1.17, I love this verse describing the Father. It says that the Father has no shadow in him. Father God is never inconsistent. He is what he is. He is always perfect. He is always good. There's never a hidden agenda. There's never a moment where you're going to approach him and think, oh, no, he's a bit grumpy today. Lacking patience. No, no, he is consistent. He blesses, Ephesians 1.3. What kind of blessing? Well, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms, in the place where he rules and reigns fully, where he is the center of everything. Everything, sorry. With every spiritual blessing in Christ. Man, we haven't got time to deal this justice, but reality is the blessing isn't some kind of top hand on your head, bless you, child. No, no, this is like, I want you to have all of the goodness of who I am revealed in Jesus for you to personally experience throughout the whole of your life. That's a pretty good blessing. He chooses us. Some of this stuff, it should undo us. Ephesians 4, 1, 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Nothing to do with you or I. He didn't say, oh, he's worthy of choosing. No, no, before the creation of everything. God chose you and he chose me. Man, that's, do we let this stuff bounce off? Oh yeah, chosen, yeah, yeah, chosen. No, no, before anything was thought of, because remember, God's the only one who can truly create because he's the only one who can imagine things that's not yet been. So the one who imagined you before you ever were to be chose you because he knew he wanted to cherish you with his love. Now maybe you're in the room and think, hey, I don't know this Jesus. I don't know who this God as a father is. Well, hey, he chose you before the creation of the world to be in a room like this so that you could get to know that he chose you because he loves you lavishly. He disciplines us. Man, we don't like that one, do we? Why did he throw that one in? We were on a bit of a roll. It all seemed pretty good. He disciplines us. Hebrews 12, 5, 6. 
And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? Why? Because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Man, don't see discipline as something that's out to get you. Discipline from a father is the most loving action. Now, when my kids were growing up, I don't have to do as much discipline now, but when they're growing up, they just did dumb stuff. That's the reality. They just did dumb stuff. Why? Because they had to learn about it. Now, because I loved them, I didn't allow them to keep doing the dumb stuff. I brought a discipline and understanding that, hey, if you do this, there's a consequence because this does you harm. Why? Because I love you. I'm not out to get you. I love you and I want the best for you. We're the Father who disciplines us because he loves us and wants the best for us. And that verse has been so taken out of context of people thinking and starting to paint a picture of some high head teacher father who sits there with kind of some rod that's going to come and beat you, say, I knew you'd do that. No. Loving father who lovingly, patiently comes alongside and says, come on, don't keep going that way. This does you harm. Which sometimes can mean actively withholding things from us. Sometimes it can mean actually say, no, I'm now going to cause this to happen in order that you learn the consequences. A loving father who disciplines. But he's also a father who provides, Matthew 6, 26. Jesus says, man, just look at creation. Yeah. Look at any part of it. Look at a bird, I don't know, a sparrow, you know, a sparrow that are kind of to a penny. Though not so much if you live in a city, but there's sparrows out there and, and like they never worry about what's going to happen. They just know there's going to be some worms or something that they eat. Why? Because the Father looks after them. And Jesus says, yeah, you're way more valuable than a sparrow. Now, for some of us who think, yeah, but animals count. Yeah, they really do. And how we care for creation matters. But there was one of part of creation that is above everything else, and that is humanity, where God said, I'm going to set my image on them because they're more valuable, because then they get to image me to the rest of creation. So we care for animals, yes, we need to understand the Father, though, puts us in a different place and says, hey, you're way more valuable than that. God is a Father who longs to provide for you and for me. I struggle with that sometimes. I think, man, it's okay, God, I'll take it from here. He's like, man, I'm a Father who longs to provide for you. He's merciful. Man, that's good. A Father whose first action towards us is one of mercy. How do we know that? Well, look at Jesus. The supreme answer and our explanation of God's, the Father's mercy towards you and I. And he's powerful. He is a Father and he is in heaven. Ephesians 4, 6 kind of puts it this way. Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We haven't got like a father. When I was a kid, they used to play this game or we played a game which is whose dad's better? My dad's better than yours because blah. Um, and in it, this is the one where, man, I wouldn't have liked to have known Jesus at this point because he'd just been going, yeah, my, my father's better than everyone. <laughs> well, he's in all, he's over all. Man, that's a father, one who is all-powerful. You know, when we look and say, this is a father who is located in heaven, in other words, the realm where God is supremely reigning, where his goodness and love saturates and envelops everything. 
And when you see in Revelation the description of what that looks like, you find at the very center of everything else going on is a throne where the Father seats. Why? Because he is all-powerful. And everyone else there bows before him in honor. And we're going to look at that next week. But the moment, the starting point, isn't that we come and think, oh, actually we think, wow, he's my father. The one who is all-powerful. So that's what kind of father we have, a father who is in heaven. But we need to ensure that, therefore, this knowledge of who this father is isn't something we just think, oh, yeah, that's good, but rather we allow it to marinate within us. See, marination is different to baths. See, in a bath, we can tend to think, oh, yeah, what I need to do is just soak it in. No, no, soaking is temporary. Any one of us who's had a bath and fallen asleep, you know you get out of the bath and you, just, you know you look like a prune. But the reality is your prune status will not last forever. Depending on age, it will take a bit longer. But it won't last forever. And we can sometimes mistake the fact that we are those who are to marinate ourselves in the wonder of who the Father is with hot baths. The problem with that is it will only have a short-term effect. And we need to marinate like we would vegetables or a meat in a sauce, where we leave it and allow it to permeate the substance of it. We need to be those who allow the wonder of who our Father is to permeate the very being of who we are. Like, how do we do that? Well, Romans 8, 16 says this, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, the very core of who we are, that we are God's children. In other words, this isn't some kind of mind over matter thing. It isn't like, oh, I must wish into myself some degree of who the Father is. No, we take the reality of how the Father is revealed through Scripture, and we allow the Holy Spirit to come and work within us to say, would you reveal more and more of the wonder of what this father is. And we meditate on it, man. That slide that was before, we'll get out to everyone. You know, I saw some of you already taking the photos. Just quickly put it back, Moby, that would be brilliant. That one, if you've not taken a photo, quickly take it. You have to zoom in, some of the font's very small. But in it, you want to take these verses. A great way to start and say, hey, the marination time starts now. Because I'm going to just take moments of just contemplating meditating, allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal the wonder of what it means that I have a Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. The origin of compassion. And allow that to permeate us. And that means for me, I, I take time to think, what does compassion truly mean? Well, compassion means that you see the plight of someone and you are moved to action to help them. I have a father who sees the plight of my life and was, is moved continuously to action. Oh, is he ready though? Is he ready? Yes, because he sent his son Jesus to supremely show his compassion to me. And I daily have to take time just saying, I have a father. I marinate in him. You know, daily waking up, as I wake up at the moment, I'm literally, as I come to, you've already heard about how bad I am in the mornings, I'm coming to saying, Father, Father, I want to know you more today. And I start to remember who this Father is. So we marinate in him. But secondly, as we then get to having marinated in the truth of who this Father is, we then get to be molded or formed by him. Isaiah 64, 8 says this, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. 
we are all the work of your hand. Here's the deal. Now, some of you have been thinking, I knew it was going somewhere, but why is there a porcelain fish at the front today? Well, let me introduce Gus the fish. <laughs> um, Gus does know, who's part of Oasis, that this is called Gus the fish. He was named in his honor in our family. Gus the fish, you see, is a reality I think that many of us live with, is we believe we're the finished product. To me, you only have to look at this fish to think this was never the finished product. <laughs> the potter, this, the artist should have spent a little bit longer on this one. But you see, I think we think, after a while, hey, I'm done. I've been killed. I'm ready. I've got this one down. You're my father. I'm shaped by you. I'm molded into perfection. I wonder if we need to look at this slightly differently. I wonder if the marination process continuously has to happen because we need to be continually softened as clay because we're never fully finished until we finally see him. And therefore, there is a desire of the potter who is our father to be continuously forming and molding us into who he desires us to be in order that we understand how we're defined. See, I think that molding and shaping is about how we relate to God. It's about how we relate, if we flip to the next slide, in terms of 1 John 3, 1, that we understand that out of God's love for us, we are his children, See, when we fully get that, we understand that we get to have confidence before God. We're not approaching a stranger. We're not approaching someone we've got to try to appease to be on our side. We're actually approaching someone whose child we are, who's lovingly focused towards us. Give us confidence before him. Also gives us confidence in him. Because we realize what kind of father he is. That's why we have to keep marinating. He wants to shape us. I'm just like, oh, that's the kind of father you are. This is how I get to relate to you. But not only is it molding and shaping how we relate to God, it's also how we relate to ourselves. John 17, 21, 23. We're not going to have time to look at this, but just that emphasized bit that you've loved them, that's us, as you have loved me. I don't think... I've yet to grasp the full extent of this. This is a mystery verse. That God who has always been, has always lived in community as Father, Son, and Spirit, was only ever Father because there was a Son. A Spirit that's always lived in triune community. Has always loved one another. Everything else has been eternally formed through that love. That that love that has been eternally enjoyed is now towards you and towards me. That's how we're loved. And when we start to grasp the fullness of that love, it's height, width, depth, breadth, it allows us to understand we have nothing to prove. It transforms. In the moment where we think we are unlovable, in the moment it feels like no one else loves us, we get to remember we have a Father who is in heaven who has set his love eternally on us. We're more loved than we could dare to believe. There's a philosopher from the late 1800s who said this. He wrote a prayer, Soren Kierengaard. He said this, You have loved us first, O God, alas. We speak of it in terms of history as if you loved us first but a single time. Rather than that, without ceasing, you have loved us first many times. And every day and our whole life through. When we wake up in the morning and turn our soul towards you, 
you were there first. You have loved us first. If I rise at dawn and at that same second turn my soul towards you in prayer, you're there ahead of me. You have loved me first. When I withdraw from the distractions of the day and turn my soul towards you, you are there first and thus forever. And we speak ungratefully as if you have loved us first only once. How so quickly we lose sight of the fact that God has eternally set his love on you and on me. A love that is to cover us as we sleep, a love that covers us as we wake, a love that covers us as we continue throughout the whole of our day. We have a Father in heaven, but it only shapes us in respect to our relationship with God, our relationship within ourselves, but also our relationship with one another. Because he isn't my Father, he's our Father. No one has exclusive rights to the Father. We get to share him. And sharing him changes how we get to live because it means that we don't live in comparison or competition. we rather know, hey man, we've got the same Father who is all of those characteristics to each and every one of us and we therefore get to spur one another on in living in light of it. We get to know that we're a family together with a Father, amazing older brother as well, Jesus. We're not some random bunch of people who gather and think, hey, this is good. No, no, we're a family with an amazing father who longs for his characteristics to permeate who we are to one another. But it's also that we're a family that then call others to come and see and taste of how good this father is. We've got a world out there that is crying to know the kind of father we know. And we've started to believe that he's not enough. And he truly, truly is. See, our starting point has to be our Father in heaven. See, it's a daily invitation, a daily invitation that transforms how we see God. He's not distant, but loving. It transforms how we live as individuals, understanding that we now have this Father who is continuously, exclusively for us and everyone else. That we get to know that he loves us more than we could dare to believe. And that we're invited to daily marinate in who he is as a Father, allowing it then to shape and mold who we are as we live out our lives. That then causes us to then, in that daily invitation, say, our Father in heaven, Come reveal your father into this world. And we're living in a day and age where people like need a father like we know. And we've become embarrassed of talking about him. And we don't. We've got such a good, good father to offer. Last thing then. What is the one step you will take this week? I don't mean like, I'm gonna like, take my left foot in front of my right foot. I'm not talking about that. I don't want any smart Alec answers. I mean, like in respect to living in the wonder that God is your father and mine, what's the one thing you're gonna do this week daily to live in light of this? I'm gonna give us, I literally, we've got 30 seconds. And in that 30 seconds, you think, man, this is getting pressured. Turning up the heat, yeah, yeah. Why? Because I think this will do us good. In that 30 seconds, I want you to think, what is that one thing? 
For some of us, it's just going to be, I need to just look and start to be persuaded that the Father is good. For some of us, it's that we need to get back and say, do you know what? I settled and thought I was fully made and I need to be softened again. I know what it is for you. 30 seconds now. What's the one thing you're going to do? Just we're different ones of us have got that one thing. What I want us to do, I want to pray for us in a moment. But how I'm going to do that is I want us to stand. That isn't because it's special. It isn't because I suddenly feel affirmed by it. It's just a way of us saying, as I stand, God, I'm coming and I'm committing to this thing that I've said. If, if you don't want to stand, sorry, I should have said that. You don't have to. Sorry, there's no pressure. I don't, as I said, there's no value built in me. Why? I've got eternal father who loves me more than I could dare to believe. I'm just going to pray for us. God, I thank you, you're our Father. And as our Father, you desire such, such good things for us. Father, I pray, would you cause each and every one of us, whether we've walked with you for days, weeks, months, or decades, I pray, would you cause us to know that you're a Father who's a potter, who's longing to soften us that we'd be shaped more and more by who you are. And I ask for each of us, where we've committed and said, this is the thing. I pray, God, would you keep us focused on that thing daily? I pray, God, we wouldn't compare with others, we wouldn't um, compete with others. I pray, rather, we'd understand that we can share it, knowing we can be spurred on. And I ask, God, that over this coming week, we would be transformed in the knowledge that you're our Father. And God, we want to commit ourselves that as we give ourselves to understanding more of the beauty of prayer, of how it forms us, I pray God, we be a different bunch of people through this series in order that your kingdom would come more on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this for your great name, Jesus. Amen.